0: The following is a production of Truth Exchange and is made possible by the generous financial support of our listeners and friends like you. If you like more information about Truth Exchange or how you can be a partner, please visit us online at truthexchange.com.
1: My third point is all religions are one. Now my circle I will divide like this as pieces of a pie where the, uh, the idea that there might be truth and falsehood very quickly disappears in such an image. Everything is relativized, and every piece of information or religious truth really is converging to the same point. And so there is no conflict. There is no difference. All religions finally lead to the same point. There are many paths up the mountains, says the Japanese proverb, but the view from the top is still the same, and that is uh, a notion that is profoundly behind these various movements to bring the world's religions together. The parliament of the world's religions in Chicago in 93 being one example. As I say, I was there, it was not a parliament. As far as I know, parliament members punch each other in the nose every now and again, they disagree, they vote. And they come up with uh, compromises every now and again, or somebody wins. This was a happening. This was an attempt to show that all religions really are one. And so they had professional conflict resolution experts from MIT who led the 6,000 people in various exercises to show how we could resolve our religious conflict. Now, think about it there wasn't one theological speech ever given. It was all technique and uh, manipulation. And an assumption that really all religions were one anyway. But I remember this uh, conflict resolution expert has had us sit on our hands and then, no it wasn't sit on your hands, it was hold your chair tightly. And think about the one religious idea you hold most dear to you and hold it tight. And then she said, and then throw it away. So everyone goes like this, you know. And then she said, okay, grab back hold of it now. (laughs) I don't know what that was supposed to tell you. You were still alive after having done this or whatever. clearly it was to show that your belief system was totally relative. Um, Another exercise they had us do was to, everyone sing a note. Of course it was total cacophony. And then she said, now, do it, but listen to the person next to you." And slowly the cacophony became, I couldn't call it a symphony, but you know, it, it got much closer to the same note. These were various exercises, but in a week of Parliament, which I thought would obviously be extremely fascinating, with all the different religions, 125 different dresses, headdresses, beards, no beards, different scriptures, different liturgies, that one would expect this to be just brimming with all kinds of fascinating material, but as a matter of fact, it was one of the most boring weeks I've ever spent. Because, oddly enough, the same message came through in all these religions, and uh, that included the liberal Presbyterian professor, and the liberal Catholics, and the liberal Jews and the liberal Muslims and everybody, they all said the same thing. Well, this is, the, um, this is behind these kinds of movements. There are going to be major celebrations of the unity of the world's religions in the year 2000. The Parliament of the World's Religions has organized another one, the United Religions of Bishops Swing. There are two Anglican bishops that you should know about on the radical side, Spung and Swing but Swing is on the West Coast, and uh, he's the head of an organization called United Religion. It's associated with the United Nations. Um, Of course, the World Council of Churches uh, is now promoting more and more the unity of the world's religions. I heard one well-known spokesman for the WCC give a sort of an overview of the World Council of Churches and the whole direction of where the church should be going. He said the first stage was monologue, the second stage was dialogue, and now we're moving into the third stage, and he didn't have an og for that one, but it was that we needed to pass into the experience of other religions. We needed theologians to actually become other religious worshipers. And so, not only do we have here a relativization of religious truth, you folks can't see this, can you? Uh, It's a circle with pie shapes in it. Um, Not only do you have a relativization, but now, you see, you have this kind of thing taking place as these various pieces begin to have communion one with the other, which is essentially syncretism. And this is the new program for these movements of world religion. So, monism, which is the big circle... (laughs) is being pushed along by this view of religion, highly financed and extremely well organized. The fourth point then, the first one is all is one, one is all, the second humanity is one, the third one is religions are one. The fourth one, I think gets to the real heart of the various uh, agenda we see in our day. There is one problem. What is the problem? If we want the world joined together, What is it that is stopping global peace and harmony? And what, indeed, will bring about this human El Dorado that so many now believe must come? Well, there is a problem, they have to admit. We all have to admit there's a problem. The Bible speaks about it one way. Monism speaks about it in a very different way. The Bible speaks about sin and guilt, about the human, the creature, Attempting to stand against the Creator and therefore express fundamental disregard for the Creator and real moral sin. The monistic system describes the problem this way. That the great problem is metaphysical amnesia. We're all asleep. The problem is not that we're sinners, we're sleepers. What do they mean by that? Well, they mean, you see, that somehow we have allowed the pressures of life, or as the Hindus would say, the illusion of matter, to blind us to who we really are. And who we really are is point two, we're all little dots of, of divinity. We have forgotten then who we really are as divine beings. And in that stupor of sleepfulness, which is not a passive sleep, it's an active sleep. We have done evil to the world. And you know what the evil is? We have made distinction. Distinction making is the great problem and must be eliminated. We've divided people into opposing camps. We don't have a paradigm of global unity. We've been living with the paradigm of antithesis that has to go. We've been making distinctions between good and evil, right and wrong, truth and error, and we need to eliminate these distinctions that come from where they come from. The monists of today will say they come from an era that is passing away from the Western Christian culture. Here are the illegitimate distinctions that we make that must be eliminated. And as I go through this list, you will notice, more so in some, less so in others, that they are antithetical to everything the Bible says. Well, of course, the first major distinction that must be eliminated is what makes Christianity Christianity, the distinction between the creator and the creature. In monism, that has to go. This circle has to be eliminated in order for this one to express itself in its fullness. Do you see how these two systems cannot coexist? How you cannot have one foot in one, and one in the other? How you cannot attempt to bring these two systems together? Well, from that creature-creator distinction follow others that must be eliminated, namely animal and human. You know, when God created, according to the Bible, He made all kinds of distinctions. That's part of God's creative work in the Bible to make distinctions. But in monism, these distinctions have to be eliminated. So the animal-human is not an interesting distinction, ultimately. And So you get in the, the forces of monism a powerful expression of this in what's called deep ecology. We need to get rid of the notion of life and death, because really there is no such thing as death in monism. If you are uncreated, there is no such thing as death. There's a temporary habitation in a human body, but then of course that can be repeated as in reincarnation and so on. Death loses any significance. There's no real significance between truth and falsehood because any point on the circle from one perspective is true or from another is false. And so everything is relativized. Notice of course, though, that there is a truth claim. The truth claim came before all this in the massive statement that this system is correct. Once you bought that system, you can buy all the other statements, but there is a truth claim. There's no distinction between sin and holiness. You do what you want to do. There's no distinction between scripture and other revelations. More and more, the Bible is being simply put along with other scriptures, and it's also being opened up to the admission of other scriptures as in the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas. No distinction between orthodoxy and heresy, the Christian religion and non-Christian religions. These other distinctions we must eliminate ultimately husband-wife, child-parent, traditional family, alternate lifestyles, male, female, heterosexual, homosexual. Do you see how these distinctions that God placed in His created order must be eliminated in order for this false view of creation to succeed. And as I went through that list of distinctions, you surely were able to place your own experience of examples where these distinctions are being eliminated in one way or another. In other words, what I'm trying to say here is that many of the social agenda that we see around us that claim to be this or that you take a look at them and ask, are they eliminating God-given structural distinction? Because I'm convinced that paganism is a totalizing system, and it is uh, involved in the elimination of the distinctions that God has placed in the creation in order to remind us of himself, in order to remind us of that great distinction between the creator and the creature. So prove that, of course, is what Paul does in Ephesians 5, 22-23. He argues that that very distinction in in difference and in communion between a man and a wife, God put it in the universe in order to tell us about the mystery that it symbolizes, namely the mystery of Christ and the Church. That's why the distinctions are there. That's why in the pagan lie they must go. Finally, there's one means of escape. When you recognize a problem, Obviously, you must come up with a solution. And I suppose it's not sufficient, as in Christianity, as a matter of fact, to simply show people the truth. It's very important that we show people the Christian truth. But there's also that which makes Christianity true is not simply that it holds together in our mind, but it grasps our heart. There is an experience of Christianity. There is an emotional grabbing hold of the love of God that makes all our intellectual understanding fit into place so that we have a full oh, understanding of our Christian faith. You know, dead orthodoxy is, is dead. Orthodoxy is wonderful. <laughs> and, and how can orthodoxy not be dead? Why, it's because God comes to us, not simply in our minds, but on all levels of our being and brings us to Himself through the heart and the emotions and everything else. So, Christianity is true to us because of all those things. Well, paganism has that reflection to it as well. You don't simply go to people and say, hey, wouldn't it be nice to be a pagan? Uh, Here are are the five points of paganism, Uh, convert. (laughs) It, It really wouldn't necessarily work. And so what you actually do, is proposed an experience. And it's the kind of experience, you see, that uh, I read to you out of the memoirs of Ram Dass. The experience that is proposed is an experience of mystical transport through, generally now, meditation. Drugs do it, but as Ram Dass said in his lecture, they're more harmful to the body. And so, most people who began with drugs actually end up doing Hindu or Eastern meditation. But notice what this process does. I think it's very instructive. The goal of meditation... By the way, I've never done it, so I'm sort of talking on the basis of what I've read and what these pagans say it's supposed to do. The goal of meditation is to get beyond distinctions. Did you notice, as I read that experience of Ram Das and his LSD trip, that all the distinctions of body and soul were gone. Uh, The distinctions of male, female, eliminated. He didn't care what sex he was, and now it turns out that's given him the ability to be homosexual. Uh, He didn't care what social role he was playing. This had nothing to do with who he really saw himself to be as this I, this uncreated essence. Now, the mystical experience of monism is to produce that. And it is sometimes described as getting beyond the mind. In other words, the Hindu Eastern gurus have developed discipline systems where they focus on a point for hours and hours and hours in such a way as they can arrest logical thinking. And the mind supposedly gets beyond rational thinking and, and in a trance, begins to feel at one with all things. But you see the price you have to pay. You have to have arrested the God-given ability to think. You have to stop thought. And um, Phil Jackson, again, another of your neighbors, coach of the Chicago <laughs> Bulls, in his book Sacred Hoops, where he describes his... Um, move away from Christianity to Buddhism, complains that the one thing that he still has to struggle with as he meditates are all these nuisance Bible verses that keep jumping into his mind. Join us next week as Dr. Peter Jones looks at
0: pagan sexuality, how spirituality defines sexuality. This podcast is made possible only through the contributions of friends like you. Following production of music is produced by Dr. Peter Jones. Too. No more, and no less, just Jesus and you. Does Jesus, and you.